0: We discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones.
1: Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. I'm really happy to have you here. Today, I'm talking with Katrina Kavanaugh. Katrina is a woman who knows. Her ability to connect to the past, present, and future has allowed her to offer insights, healing, and inspiration to thousands of people as a grief and trauma therapist, a life strategist, and a spirituality coach. She believes we all have the power to tap into our inner wisdom in order to create lives full of happiness, wealth, and health. She is the spirituality and intuitive coach on Deborah Hutton's new media website, Balance. Katrina is also a published author, speaker, and lover of life. Katrina is a regular contributor to maria appeared on Channel 7's Weekend Sunrise, and was featured on Channel 7's 2011 series of The One. Katrina has been heard on radio across Australia, featured in national print and online media. She has her own radio show, I Am Wisdom, on OM Times Radio. And her first book, Wisdom for Your Life, published by Alan and Unwin, is now available in Australia, New Zealand, the USA, and Canada. And you can find her at www.katrinacavanaugh.com, K A T R i n a c a v a n o u h dot com welcome katrina
2: welcome thank you very much it's wonderful to be here
1: wonderful to be with you and um wonderful that we found a time where we'd both be awake at the same time since
2: i know, <laughs> I know you're over in australia correct yeah. Well, I, you know, I will just add that to my list of miracles for this year because, you know, I love it. It's wonderful to really, we're in a very small world, aren't we? You know, with technology and obviously transport, it, it takes it doesn't take any time at all to connect with someone on the other side of the world and I love that. I love it. Once we can get the balance with certainly the um, – the time difference, of course. So we did well. We did well. Absolutely,
1: to do that today. and and actually, I've I've interviewed um, a few people from Australia before, and I'm wondering if maybe um, grief, death, etc., are more um, talkable in Australia. <laughs> I don't know whether that. No. That, no. Uh, No, it's the same as here, is it?
2: (laughs) I was hoping that in the US that actually there was more room and space for people to um, perhaps acknowledge their feelings. But certainly here in Australia, I think that we are quite conservative. I mean, within, I mean, of course there are pockets in the community where it's different, but really Mm -hmm. we're a Western country, but we're quite a conservative country in that way as far as um, we don't do death well. Um, we we allow the initial phase of a few days, and then essentially people like to step back into life as they know it, and that's fine for the other people who weren't as directly affected by the loss. But you know, perhaps they were sad, and or they have they're not not as close to the loss. Sure. But for the person who has experienced the loss, as you know, um, that loss, that feeling, the thoughts, the experience of the grief um, continues way beyond those first few days, few weeks, few months. So. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, one thing that I did appreciate so much about your book, I've I've read quite a few books um, f- written by people who, like yourself, um, have have a um, level of communication with people mm-hmm. who have died, mm-hmm. and and I find that in general the books want to tell the reader they don't need to grieve, uh, uh, you know, yeah. because. There's nothing bad about death. And I really appreciated in your book that you didn't draw that conclusion that there was room for both knowing that um, death can be faced, you know, Mm. and room for the grief of those of us who've lost people. So I I really appreciated
2: that aspect of your book. Well, I would like to say thank you for noticing that. For me, I I think that's one of the things that makes my experience... I feel unique in that way and I think that's come, from, that's come from a few areas. First of all, first and foremost, for 21 years I've been working as a therapist um, So, and most of my clients have been people who are qualified therapists in the mainstream industry here in Australia. Um, and so the people I have been working with are people who've really suffered in life. Mm-hmm. and they've suffered through, you know, difficult and abusive childhoods. Um, they've suffered through their own choices, for example, um, you know, making some not-so-good choices because they're in so much pain, you know, we all do, In sadness. We mm-hmm. all find ways as, as children right through to adults, we always find ways to push away that sadness, don't we? Sure. And that And, that, and our ways or our strategies to push away the sadness can be, things that obviously can hurt ourselves sometimes and hurt others. So, you know, things like drug and alcohol use, sometimes crime, sometimes, you know, just um, um, hurting ourselves with negative self-talk or whatever it may be. So I, or getting into tricky relationships. So my work generally in the last 21 years has been with human behaviour relationships, worked a lot in drug and alcohol, worked a lot with child protection, so children and child abuse, providing therapy to both the children and, and the adults who sometimes do the harm themselves. Mm-hmm. Um and then a lot of relationship therapy as well. So, And then, of course, there's my work at the hospital where I obviously, for 10 years, as, as described in my book, you know, I worked a lot with death. So I think what, what that has given me, it's given me um, direct, direct professional experience and insight into the fact that there may be, in the non-physical world, an understanding and an explanation and an experience of death in a certain way but that is in the non-physical world. The, we have to live in the physical world and we have to live in the physical world with the limitations of the human mind and personalities So, and belief systems. So what that means is we feel pain mm. and it really, really hurts. And I actually, for me, the two sides coexist together and one does not replace the other. So, yes, I know from my experience spiritually my understanding, and through my soul-to-soul communication, I know that death is gentle every single time. Even the most traumatic death is actually gentle. I know that. I know that um, there is actually nothing to be feared about death itself. There is a lot to be feared. I, 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 even myself, with all that I know, I don't want to die. Mm. I don't want to die because not because I'm fear, fearful of the death, but because I'm. I don't want to know that the people that I care about, my children, will be suffering. Mm-hmm. So I think I hold a really unique position of having the, you know, the clinical knowledge and expertise about what actually happens to people when they, when they grieve and they experience death, also holding the spiritual. And then, of course, I have my own experiences of grief, both in lost relationships um, with parents and lost relationships in, in life and then also with um, people who I've cared about that have died as well. And I know that even though I know what I know, um, my life is, I felt the pain. So I think, I think those three areas come together and that's why I'm able to never ask another person, never ask another person to so to repress their feelings and not acknowledge them. No, I couldn't do that.
1: That, that connects with so many things in my, in my belief, uh, one that came to my mind is that I've heard from several people my mother died in September I may have mentioned that to you I can't recall and yes, we initially quite a few people have said to me oh it must be easier for you because you're a grief counselor <laughs>
2: It's insane! It's insane, isn't it? To think that it somehow it's worse in some ways.
1: Well, I'll tell you what—the answer that just popped out immediately, which has held—I say it every time I hear that—is it only helps in one way? I know I have to do it. Exactly. (laughs) You know, I'm not trying to get out of it. I'm not
2: trying to make it better than it is. You know, it just is what it is. And I don't know what your experience is but what I know for sure and that's why as therapists yourself or as clinicians or as, you know, counsellors or um, educators on grief, the truth is that you still need to go through your own process and what I understand to be true is, as someone who's been doing this for a long time, is that just because you know the information you can't access that when you're in a state of grief because if we, even if we look at it on a brain, what we know about neuroscience is that when you are when you are sad and you are grieving, you're operating from more your primitive brain, primitive part of your brain, rather than your rational thinking brain. That's so right. when you're overwhelmed with emotions and distressed because of pain, the pain that comes with loss the rational part of our brain shuts down and we completely come from that part of the brain where we're in fight, flight, freeze or submit, you know, or we're trying to find our way th- through our overwhelming emotions and you can't access that. So we know that even though we might know the information, in the moment of the depths of our despair, we can't access it um, just the same as any- anyone else. So it's, it's interesting, isn't it?
1: It is. And... Um- kind of holding those two things together as i'm you know that i still have my knowledge yes uh, I, it's not that it went anywhere and it yes. and i access it all the time it's just that grief is it, at least the way i think about it uh which intersects with what you're saying is in on some level grief is physical yes <laughs> you know it's yes. happening in a
2: body not in a mind yes that's right grief is definitely physical yeah. And I mean, I, well, I think it's all of the all of that we are. So if you consider that we are physical and emotional and psychological, and for some people they believe spiritual, you know, soul level, mm-hmm. um, then I think grief can be experienced in all of those ways and also conceptualized from all of those perspectives.
1: I want to shift gears a little bit because the 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 um, counterbalancing um, fact. Uh, to go with what we're talking about is what a life, how a life is changed by coming to terms with the things we're talking about, coming yes. to terms with death as a reality, coming to terms with grief as just a ne- necessary part of that experience. And I thought you captured that beautifully with the um, the excerpt you sent me. I wonder if you'd share that. The, yes. the one that starts, "I saw life after death." Um, and, I, and felt I felt myself,
2: myself. myself change, yeah. yeah. So this is the part of the book. Basically what I'm talking about here is, you know, over 10 years, I not that I would ever do the maths, but I, um, I did work out as a result of some, some media stuff that I had worked with over 400 deaths in that time. So um, with, with the knowledge of that, this is what I say in the book. I saw life after death and I felt myself change. Over time, I began to notice that I altered the way I lived my life. I noticed afresh the rich colors of the pansies in the garden, the feeling of the wind on my, on my face and the delight of my girls wrapping their, their arms around my neck. I began to breathe in as many moments as I could. I now live with an understanding that each moment I have is the only moment that I can rely on. The result is that I live life differently from other people. To begin with, I do not fear death. It is simply a passing, not an end. I live in each moment, aware that it could be the last in this life, and that how I live it affects everyone around me.
1: I feel that's the great paradox of of uh, facing a fear of death, of getting through that. That um, it doesn't make you want to die. It, not- it makes it makes life more
2: vivid, doesn't it? I believe I believe so. And I guess part of part of the stories that I share in Wisdom for Your Life is and I and I do wish to appreciate that look, I realize that what I'm about to say sounds really far-fetched. You know, I appreciate that it's really tricky to understand that for some people, not everyone, that when we cross over there is a part of us the caught a soul and that moves into the non-physical, but this is just based on my experience, okay? And all I do is I'm not saying I'm right or I'm wrong. I just I just I'm only reporting on my experience. And what I understand. So, what happened for me was, as I as I did experience, you know, a soul to soul connection with some of the people as they passed away, and for those that came in already deceased, that already died, they began to share their life story with me. And what I noticed was. Some themes, and that, that's the things that I that the concepts that I now refer to as, as the wisdoms. But one of those was about the preciousness of each moment. And we all know that we all know that it's a very you know, it's not rocket science, we all know that each moment's precious to a degree. Mm-hmm. But what they showed me was the importance of living it mm. the importance of living it as they reflected on their own life that they just lived. And some of these people had died young the preciousness of each moment, you know, really living in the moment, really breathing in the moment, really experiencing what the moment gives us. I mean, there's a lot of this referred to in many of the philosophies that are spoken about, you know, across the world. A lot of the self-help movement is talking about the preciousness, you know, the importance of each moment. and Being
1: present and all that.
2: Being present, mindfulness Mm -hmm. and all those kinds of things, yeah. But for me, for me, after... Hearing the wisdom of the souls that have just passed away, plus bearing witness to hundreds of deaths, deaths myself, it really brought that that point very much home to me, and it has changed the way I live. It's very, it's and it's it is a very bizarre thing, really, because you would think that you would therefore be fearful and be living in a state of fear, but it's not. It flips it, doesn't it? It turns it around, and you can use that to really inform you yourself to have a very full life. Because the other thing that happens, so I'll just add this, Cheryl, the other thing that happens is when we really realize we the only moment we have now, we stop doing things like putting those important things off. Mm. We really grab life with both hands and live it differently.
1: I guess I've come to think too, and you can say if you agree with this, that um, a lot of what holds us back from our lives is fear and yes. fear of death being the big one. Yes. So when I stopped being afraid of death, I, I got more courageous in other ways too. It, do, it does sometimes take courage to live uh, fully.
2: It Don't does. you believe? Yes. Yes. From <laughs> my own, it's a what risky a thing. <laughs> it's very, very scary. It's very scary. So, from my own experience, from my own experience in my own life, plus all the people I've worked with over the last 21 years, you know, certainly as a therapist and obviously now as a co- a spirituality coach and life coach, um, it absolutely, it absolutely is, it's very scary because you're going sometimes against the norm, aren't you? You're going against the messages you've been given by your parents sometimes to play it safe. Yes. Or, or um you're going against maybe some messages you're getting from your parents that, you know, certain things matter and certain things don't. Um, so, So and then the societal pressure, you know, so there's a whole lot of things against us in a way. But what happens is when we can feel that fear and then still not allow that fear to overwhelm us but to take even the most gentle steps of really living a full life, gosh, it can be amazing. It's really good food for the soul.
1: Well, uh, of course this show we're on probably your work. Uh both those things are a result of what we're talking about, wouldn't you say? I mean, I was yes. a very shy person, believe it or not. Uh, you know, before all before all of this, uh, I never would have done something like this. So that's a that's a concrete example.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, people would probably, there's a lot of people in my life who would faint when, when hearing me say this, but I actually consider myself to be quite a shy person, you know, despite the fact that I've been on telly and I'm in the ra- on the radio and I'm always standing up talking in front of groups and, you know, and I can be quite um, articulate and um, passionate about the, the things that I'm talking about and, you know, I, I'm actually quite a reserved shy person. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's but amazing. just... You're
1: just courageous, that's all. Well, I <laughs> let's, am. Go to, let's go to a break now and talk more about this when we come back. Listeners, go to my social media on my Good Grief homepage to connect with me about the show and find Katrina Kavanaugh at com. Back after the break.
3: You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
5: time here on voiceamerica.com
3: real life solutions voice america health and wellness
0: you are listening to good grief with cheryl jones to reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now back to good grief.
1: Welcome back. This is your host Cheryl Jones again. And today I'm talking with Katrina Kavanaugh, author of Wisdom for Your Life. And and we were talking about uh, before the break um, the the paradoxical truth that once you kind of face your fear of death, uh, life tends to get much more joyful, perhaps fuller, mm-hmm. um, more more out and out, I guess. And um, I I don't know if I. I mean, I've tried to explain that in linear terms, but, uh, that's less important than just having experienced it. That, in fact, one does lead to the other, uh, very often, actually. Uh, that's
2: right. Yes.
1: And yes. I'm, sh- I'm sure, uh, I don't know. Have you ever, you know, you, you encountered all of these people in, um, what, what would have to be their worst moments when they've, <laughs> when they've lost someone precious to them.
2: Well, the truth is, Cheryl, that, um, and I do say this often to people, that it's it's the death that I experienced in, in working in the hospital setting, all of those deaths were sudden, unexpected, and traumatic. So they're all the most feared ways of dying, That people have and and the most feared experiences that people have. So I would be with family and friends and loved ones and these are people who woke up on one morning of that day and they knew their life to be a certain way and then by the time they went to bed that night, their life had completely changed by the experience and the loss of someone that they cared about. So they were in shock. And, you know, they were obviously deeply affected by what, what had happened. And so over and over again, I was frontline and bearing witness to that kind of loss. And so it's kind of like when you experience that and then drawing the link back into, you know, through experiencing that and, and then therefore developing an understanding of death and dying and what happens. Um, I think that for me is is what has given me and given the people that I work with. A much greater openness. It's helped to release the fear. It's helped them to be grounded in the moment um, and really make much better choices for themselves in their own life. I've seen some people Um, not necessarily the people I worked with at the hospital, but obviously I've got clients that I work with in my private practice who've lost people in that same way. And the change that those people talk about, the changes that have happened to themselves in the way they perceive themselves, Mm. the way they perceive their relationships and the way they do and live life, it's very different for them. So it's transformational then really, even though it's horrendously sad. So that's the tricky tricky, um, way that those two things sit together.
1: Well, honestly, I, I can't think of a time when someone, uh, I can think of times when people avoided grief and that not that much changed. Yes, I, I, I can't really think of a time where, where someone um, uh, avoided grief and got somewhere with it. It seems like it's sort of required that you actually go through the grief or yes. the loss, is
2: that your experience as well? Well, I think that, you know, I remember I because remember I grew up going, in, going to church and I'm sitting as a child actually and I just remember this sermon that um, a minister, Reverend Harvey, gave. And what he talked about was the difference that he noticed when someone of faith, someone who had a spiritual belief basically, um, when they lost someone and then they would, they would be supported and they were in a community of people who then literally acknowledged the grief and then help them to step through it, so therefore they did grieve. And then, of course, certainly in my clinical work, I've worked with a lot of people who, when you sit down and talk to them, they come in and they're very distressed about some other issue in their life. And then when you – I mean, I've got a client right now who – actually, I've got, I've got about two or three men that I'm working with right now and I'm working with them in the context of relationship therapy. And it's funny because it's funny how you get a group all of a sudden. You know, you go along mm. for 20 years <laughs> and these people come in clusters anyway. So, um, <laughs> another, and, mystery. <laughs> another, another mystery. Another mystery, yes. And all of these men have um, lost either parent or both when they were young. And all of these men have not acknowledged the loss. Okay, and then they come back in, and they've got you know other things are happening in their life, and blah 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 blah. So I think this is a good example because the truth of it is loss hurts. Yes, it is painful. There's no way that is you cannot change that is a fact. Um, and if you don't feel it, it has to go somewhere. And when it gets repressed or suppressed or even expressed a little bit, but then is repressed again. You know we know that that doesn't do well for people emotionally, physically. it will man it will come through in their relationships being difficult. It will certainly you know as we know, it can come through in you know people feeling un- being experiencing illness in their own body. so it's not it's not good, and they people don't grow from it. and i be, i I have direct experience of seeing people you know y- years and decades later. Who are living in a in a state of misery can't explain why they feel so sad can't explain why they feel well they feel so you know lacking in motivation to live life are having difficulty in their relationships They're, and then you dig around and have a little chat and they they were four years of age when they when their mother died mm-hmm. you know. And have you ever grieved? Oh, no, I didn't actually, I don't remember feeling anything about it. So, you know. I was talking about that with uh, with my
1: guest last week too, that um, I, I've i worked with many people who've lost parents young uh, mm. or someone else signif- very significant young, and they're coming to work on that. But I couldn't remember one time where where when I asked, well, how did your family deal with that loss? Um, I've never heard, oh, we talked about it openly, Uh, you know. It's always the the sense of not being able to actually feel what you feel about it that people are working on.
2: Do you find that too? Absolutely. It's absolutely determined. I mean, mean, part of my work I do now is actually working as a specialist working with children who have experienced trauma themselves. So part of my focus is around supporting Children to develop an emotional literacy, to um, have a sense of, you know, getting to know their feelings and getting to know how to express their feelings and getting to know how to look after their feelings and also getting to know how to listen to their feelings. And a huge part of what I do is working with, because you can work all you want with the children, but if you're not working with the adults, to support the children to coach them on how to support the children to feel their feelings and express their feelings and honor their feelings then you know you it's really tricky for the children to do that on their own mm-hmm. so we do need that broader support system and ideally at least in their with their biological parents um, if not with with grandparents or aunts and uncles or, or something like that and ideally in the community so it's it's a very big deal how in Western society we don't give enough time or recognition for the grief process because you and I know that when you do the very thing that everyone's fearing and not wanting anyone to experience this horrible thing called grief, or once you experience it and just gently step through it, it's a lot easier. Albeit painful, but it's a lot easier and smoother and lighter when you actually just take those steps.
1: Uh, absolutely agreed. I, I mean, I I know that so deeply on a personal level. Once I, uh, you know, there's nothing bad about uh, uh, racking sobs when you've lost someone. It actually is a great a great way to let those feelings out. For instance, oh, um, not yes. a bad thing, uh, except for many people in the judgment they have
2: of it. Yes. It's all about perception. It's all about the meaning we place on things. If you think about, you know, the, the act of the body giving way to sobbing, you know, of actually expressing tears and expressing emotion in that way, it's meant to be part of our experience because we know physically when that happens, uh, a, a chemical is released in our body that has that sedative effect. So we are meant to release our feelings, then allow the human body to soothe itself, through the release of that chemical in our body, okay? And then, of course, and that's why that feels, you know, you feel better after you've had a good cry. Absolutely. Um, So we know that the body needs it. The body knows how to handle it. The body, it's part of the experience of the body because otherwise, why is it there as part of the repertoire of emotional expression? Um, It's only our meaning we attach to it. and And it's such a shame. And obviously, I'm not sure what it's like in the States. I'm assuming it may be the same. But certainly here in Australia, we, we, the males in our society have, it's, it is changing, it's changing a little bit, but the males in our society have such pressure to represent their strength by not crying and expressing emotion. Mm-hmm. When, as you and I know, that is not a representation of strength, that is a representation of repression. Um, and in fact, it's a strong person who can feel, feel the full repertoire of their feelings and, be resilient and emerge from it and continue on and experience then all the joyful things that life has to offer. I mean, that's, that's what a real strong person is, I think. Uh,
1: completely agree with you. And I would say, at least here, I think, uh, yes, women are a little more um, trained to be emotionally conversant, but mostly in the area of being there for someone else's emotion,
2: Yes, yes, yes. yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so that doesn't that doesn't always help when it's you. <laughs> oh, yeah. If I, um, I well, the amount of clients I have that I spend, you know, at the moment as a therapist and coach, where I'm supporting the females to be able to express their feelings too. You're right. To have you're their right.
1: own feelings instead of yes. having empathic feelings with
2: other people. Yes, you're right.
1: So I, I want to talk about because the backdrop to what. To our discussion obviously we have a lot in common clinically you know we see our clients who are dealing with grief from a similar vantage point point. and then um, you have something else going on which uh, you know I've had people say well every counselor or uh, therapist needs to be a little bit psychic or intuitive or mm. I guess there's some truth to that but to me it would be quite different to be working with these issues and at the very same time, be um, in some contact, as you described it in your book. For instance, you'd be working with the person who's lost someone, and the person they've lost, you you experience as being right there. And I wondered if you could talk about that. What's that? What that's like uh, to to be having two such radically different experiences as as I. You know, if I imagine it, they seem like radically different experiences at the very same moment.
2: Well, it's funny. It's funny because um, when you describe it that way, it does sound like it's a fairly... Um, complicated like a complex kind of experience but for me it's very everyday and it's very okay yep, yep yep i've got this person here and i'm supporting them of course and being absolutely present and of course they are my priority but yes at the same time over here you know in my awareness i have an awareness that there's the person that we're talking about right now in they're in spirit um so the first thing though i need to say is that because my role was, I mean, I was there as a social worker and grief therapist, so my, my focus really was, or was completely professionally, on the, the person on the planet, you know, the alive person. Sure. I got <laughs> that. I got yeah, that in yeah, your yeah. book for sure. Yeah. So I would never, of course, um, ever disclose to family, friends um, and, and the medical team any of my spiritual experiences because it wasn't professionally appropriate to do so um, and, I, my, and my priority and focus was the care of the um, family and loved ones. But, at the, so, but it, it, it does add another dimension. It's very everyday but it adds another dimension and what it means for me is that um, it gives me a greater understanding of A, the person whose life where we're talking about You know, I I have an Uh awareness of certain things that have happened and and all that stuff, which then can actually inform, it can inform the way I communicate with people. Um, And and ultimately though, and, and, and certainly more now as I step away from that specific role, but I work now clinically with people and then they're in my rooms and my offices and I'm, with their permission, able to be more open and I'm in consultation and working with them over their own therapeutic work or their own coaching work. And yet, I have their loved ones in spirit with me, and the three of the three parts of ourselves: so the energetic aspect of life, and then the physical aspect of life, like the person in front of me, and then myself and my own professional expertise. All of those things are working together, and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful way to work with people because, for me, they all work together, and one informs the other, and and it can bring about some really crystal clear insights really quickly. Mm. So. So whereas when I'm only working, when I'm just using my traditional therapy model, you know, it might take a few sessions to get to technically a certain place. Um, Whereas obviously if I have permission from the client to be working intuitively, I can say to them, look, I've got, you know, so-and-so here, I've got your spiritual team here and they're telling me blah, 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 blah. Does that make sense to you? And they're like, yes, it does. And so let's talk about what we can do about that. And, you know, Uncle Freddie's here and he's saying, you know, he's very, particularly if there's, you know, unresolved issues. They, they can validate and give me messages about you know, the depth of um, remorse or some insights about what was actually going on back then when they were four years old and you know, mum wasn't able to be attentive because, and you had to go and stay with grandma so much and you felt the loss of that and then mum's died and you haven't had a chance to resolve it. Well, we've got mum there informing you know, um, my client as to what was actually really going on in her life at that time and it brings healing. It brings understanding and it brings healing. So it is a, look, it's a phenomenal way to work with people. And I feel very blessed and privileged to be able to do, to do that.
1: That makes it sound almost like, you know, I have this, I have this consistent uh, image when I'm working with people that there's a huge carpet bag in the room and we're putting tools in it. Yes. And, uh, so that makes this feel uh, what, what you describe you experience and what, how you bring that into your work as another tool for the person yes. and for you.
2: Yes, and that's what I, and that's and my my whole, when I have, when I'm working openly intuitively, you know, that for me is it's all about them coming to see me and, and what I wish for them to leave with is an awareness that they can access that tool at any time because what I know for sure and certain is that my intuition and my capacity to have a soul, soul, soul-to-soul conversation is not something that's actually a special gift. It's every single person has the capacity to do that. So I like to tell people that I work with that, you know, part of what they can do with me is actually add to their own toolkit of life skills, you know, the things that get us through the long, dark night or, you know, make our days wonderful or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, that they can include that in their repertoire of skills, life skills, that they can communicate themselves with their loved ones in spirit, or they can communicate and draw on their own spiritual team as as, a source. It's a resource for them to experience life differently. Well, uh,
1: true. And, uh let's let's acknowledge the specialness of it when we when we come back, I really want to talk about how you developed that in yourself, maybe because we can develop it some, but also just because I think that's a very special story you have to tell um so during the break, listeners out there, you can like me on Facebook, follow me on twitter, connect on linkedin i I really appreciate conversation with you out there and knowing. How you're responding to the show, and you can learn more about Katrina Kavanaugh at ww.certina Back up through the break.
3: You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
5: time here on VoiceAmerica.com.
3: Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness.
0: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief.
1: Welcome back to Good Grief. Today, I welcome Katrina Kavanaugh, an author whose experiences receiving messages from the dead while she worked in a hospital as a social worker led to her book, Wisdom for Your Life, and her the work she does now. Um, so... I was very struck by the part of your book that was about, uh, you were talking about having um, some of these experiences as a child, Mm -hmm. um, which I think many children actually do have. For instance, when my wife died, my daughter had some very incredible um, experiences after she died uh, yes. with her uh, she was two and a half then and okay. it was quite vivid and quite you know <laughs> remarkable and quite yes. natural natural to her she was just describing what she was experiencing um but of course many people who have that kind of experience when their children uh get talked out of it um people get uncomfortable whatever and i was very very struck that that didn't seem to happen to you And I wondered if you could talk about that some.
2: Well, I think, Cheryl, what happened for me is that I was very fortunate to be raised in a family. We were all very religious, all Christian. You know, we used to go to church and all that kind of thing. Um, But at the same time, which is really interesting, you know, um, it's really interesting for those two parts of life to go because uncommon. People often, you know, if they're strongly religious, then they don't often experience or aren't, aren't as open to the spiritual side of things. Um, and but in my family, I grew up with you know a grandfather who was very head, head of the church, um, but also used to read the cards. A great grandmother who was married to a Methodist, a minister of the church, but also read tea leaves. You know, and I have a, an aunt who's still on the planet um, now, Auntie Gwen, that I refer to in the book, and she describes herself and he is a clairvoyant and psychic, and yet she's been actively involved in the church. So I was lucky to have a family who were very open to spirituality. So, but what happened for me is that from Yes, very similar. So I was just always aware. I cannot remember a time when I wasn't aware that I was I could connect and know that there were spirits around. When I was younger, though, even though I had this great family support, I was actually frightened of it because the feeling in my body that I would get when I would feel the uh, presence of a spirit used to scare me as a child. Uh-huh. And it was, and it wasn't until my teenage years I learned some boundaries around you Know closing that off and only experiencing my spirituality in my own way and all that kind of thing, so that was really helpful. Um, and then, of course, in my 20s, when I had my first experience with the young woman who passed away and she popped up in the back seat of my car, you know, spiritually assaulted, um, that was when i um, at the hospital, was my first experience, and that was when I had I learned that I had to um, I realized I had to really embrace this and put that fear aside. So I kind of had this very interesting childhood where, yes, it was easy. Yes, it was very normal. Yes, it was accepted. Um, I personally had some fear that I had to work through. But, again, I got a lot of support about that from my family, from my aunt in particular. So, yeah, I've been very fortunate in that way, really. So so in a sense they'd say, yeah, it's kind of scary, but don't worry, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> pretty, much, pretty much. They would say, it's okay to be scared. So, if you don't want to, you know, if you don't want to experience, you know, at the age of 15, my aunt said to me, Katrina, if you don't want to experience this flooding of, you know, walking around the corner and whoosh, something's there and all that kind of stuff, um, you can say, I, I want to close that off for now until I'm ready to connect with that again. So, I just said to my spiritual guides at the time, I want to close that off. I don't want to experience this spiritual stuff. You know, I don't want to know that there's a soul in the, there's a spirit in the room. And they did. They d- It just went away from me for a while. But I think it was obviously part of my life path and when obviously you know it was because I had the experiences and then all the media stuff happened and I was you know selected and on you know known as one of the top 10 intuitive people here in Australia and then of course the book and then blah blah everything else has happened so it was meant to all be but obviously at the right time I had my first experience there in the hospital and then I had to accept that this was meant to be part of my life and I was old enough then to be able to Rational to support myself, I guess, and rationalize it, which sounds like a funny word, but didn't use in this context, but I did. Um, And then develop some skills and set some boundaries up with my spiritual team where I said to them, Listen, and by my spiritual team, I mean my angels and spirit guides, or whatever you want to call it. Um, I said to them, Look, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm only doing this in daylight hours. (laughs) You know, it's only waking me up. Waking me up, I'm not getting up to feed the baby, you know. And you're going to be popping up, in, which I had to remind them of that actually, because one did pop through. So every now and again, I've got to remind them. But you know, I um, I so I set up the terms basically, the terms of engagement, I like to call it, um, where you know, you, this is when it can happen daylight hours only, or if it's going to be happening at night time, only when I say, you know, nothing, nothing that's not planned, thank you very much, um, which is the control freak in me, of course, um. And they have blind they've I've experienced then my connections with the afterlife completely in accordance with my boundaries. give or take one or two exceptions where they've pushed through because of an, some situation. Um, but that's how I've experienced. So we've kind of become harmonious, and in that way I felt safe, and then I was able to open up and experience it all much more.
1: i'm I'm kind of smiling now because of course, <laughs> as a therapist, I work with boundaries every day <laughs> and, and the idea that oh you also needed boundaries with um you know people uh, out of their bodies well, so, you know yeah. that you still need to have your human boundaries uh, well, and, yes yes and, yes and that that's that's kind of a vital thing about being human to be able to have you called it uh being controlling but it but it also is true that knowing where your boundaries are and being able to enforce them is a huge part of being human, don't you think?
2: Well, you know, as a therapist, a lot of my coach, a lot of my work, and and personally as well, the utilization and application of boundaries in all of my personal and professional relationships on the physical plane um, as well as in in my spiritual work has been a really big experience for me this lifetime. Um, and it's been a very important lesson, and I've learned that. And it's, it, you know, when I first learned about boundaries and started applying them to my own life, as you would, as you would appreciate, it, it's just transformational. You know, your life really changes. There's room all of a sudden to have a sense of self worth. You know, there's room all of a sudden to have more joy and much less drama. Um, and so I, I love boundaries and I'm not forever talking about it, you know, in my management coaching, I'm you know, about to go from here to have a meeting with a whole lot of managers. And, um, my job is to facilitate some coaching. And of course, in that context, we talk about boundaries, you know, in my, with my therapy, we talk about boundaries. It's just. So empowering to have boundaries, but yeah, it applies to the spiritual world as well. As well, they like it. They, the way it works spiritually is we're meant to experience our spirituality in the way that is most comfortable for us. They don't want you to be frightened. It's not about being frightened. It's it's you are just meant to. It's meant to be easy. You know, you're meant to be in a state of ease with all that you are, including your spiritual self. Hmm.
1: Well, that sort of sort of fits with little glimmers i've i've had um uh back to my my mother one of her caregivers had a very strong experience of her saying how well she was
0: mm. and and
1: my mother was not a, a completely easeful person mm. you know she she had a lot of um drive and this and that. And I could see her when when this woman told me her experience just being kind of happy as a clam, so I can imagine what you're saying that that someone who's died would not want people to suffer over their <laughs> over their contact so 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 much the opposite of the kind of um scary ghost idea that were that's so prevalent, isn't it
2: uh, and I, you know, in the industry, that, in the spirituality industry, you know, I'm aware that people do speak about it in that way. And what I say to people is, you know, what you believe is exactly what you experience. That's what I understand. Whatever you believe is what you experience. So if you believe in hauntings and you believe in, you know, the ghosts run around and do all the, uh, then that is what you can, you can experience that, you know, you can pop yourself into a house. You can experience that, you know what it's like, and then you can report that that was you. You touched you. You were exposed to a haunting. For me, I don't believe in that. I believe that you know if you go into an old building that the and you say to a building, "Show me," you know what's they'll give you the traumatic imprint. They'll give they'll it, the building will tell you the story of who's been here and what's gone on. Um, but that is not necessarily a haunting, you know. It's, well, it's not at all for me. So I don't experience any of that stuff because in my belief system, um, it's a very loved, filled, compassionate and gentle experience. It's also very hilarious. I mean, they told some great jokes but that fits in the realm of, in the, you know, <laughs> in, the, in the side of, you know, good stuff. But um, it's certainly not, in my experience anyway, it's not scary. The only fear I ever had was my own fear because I didn't understand it you know, and my own fear because it's something different to the norm, you know, it's it's not of this world. So that's, but that's my own fear. It's not a reflection of what someone was trying to do to me spiritually.
1: You mean you were afraid because it might mean that you were odd or uh, that, you know, it it was just uh, unusual? Was that more the scary part of it?
2: I think it's that you, if you think about it, you know, look at my own children and growing up, when, for me, the way I used to sense the presence of a spirit was I would feel it physically. So I would actually feel a physical sensation across the back of my shoulders, okay, and in my back. Mm-hmm. And so when I was a child and first experiencing that, that I interpreted that as feeling uncomfortable because it felt different to my, you know, you don't, you don't normally feel uh, that way. Uh, ah, yeah. yes. Yeah. So then it felt uncomfortable. So it's the unknown. And therefore, I would be I would feel nervous and then feel frightened about it. But now as I've as I've become older, I can feel that feeling and just go, Oh, yes, okay, that's what that is. And you know, I'm not it it doesn't hold any fear for me whatsoever.
1: You know, I have I have this uh, little cartoon, I used to have it by my desk. It was a peanuts cartoon. And, you know, they were sitting on the bean, bean pillar or whatever. And one was saying to the other, I've, I've discovered the secret of life. And the other one said, what is it? And the answer was, you just hang out till you get used to it. Um, yeah. there's some way, <laughs> there, there's some yes. way we're always yes. growing into ourselves, aren't we? Yes, absolutely.
2: <laughs> absolutely. That's what and you're that, describing. You grew into yourself. You, I you, grew into myself. Absolutely. And it's been, I love it. You know, it's been I kind of, it's, you know, you know, when all of us grow into some aspect of ourselves, we can look back on The time when we weren't comfortable with that aspect of us. And it can almost feel like you're referring back to someone else. Absolutely. You know, we just
1: have a couple of minutes left and I really would like you to read this section, talk about Leon for a minute and then read the section
2: about him because it's such a beautiful way to, to end our time, I think. Okay, well, thank you, Cheryl, and thank you for that opportunity. Leon was a young man who came into the hospital, and he had um, died because he drank too much alcohol, and essentially, physically, he'd, um, you know, he'd been unwell. So he's he'd actually vomited, and he choked then on his vomit. So he basically had died from suffocation, um, due to alcohol. And I had there his mum, and I had a whole lot of friends around, and so that that's the real story of Leon. So the 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 excerpt of the book begins like this. I asked Leon about his understanding about how this works with families and our other intimate relationships. I should, sorry, I'll just stop there. I should say that I'm now in communication with Leon and we're sharing about, you know, his life and he's reflecting about relationships. So I'll, I'll begin again. I asked Leon about his understanding about how this works with families and our other intimate relationships. Even before I'd finished the question, Leon began to share. Just as we are all interconnected in all the good ways, so some of us are interconnected in our pain and trauma. When one father rejects his son, so does his son reject his children and so on from one generation to the next, it continues. Every now and then there will be chain breakers. These are souls who come to earth to heal that pain line. As they heal themselves, they also heal all the pain from generations before them. They break the patterns of their family line. The family need these people to feel the shift that comes with this kind of healing. Leon tells me that his sister Jessica is a chain breaker. She is so soft. She is quiet, shy. She is strong and determined. I used to talk to her all the time. She understood me. She is my sister, but she is also like my mum in some ways. Jess always looked out for me. I will help her from this side now. Is it really that simple? Yes, that sounds so easy. So how are you feeling, Leon, now? I feel free. I, I am able to see and understand so much. I will help mum and Jess from here. It was time to check to check in with Carol and see how she is moving through a night that is now the worst night, night of her life. When I find her, Carol is weeping quietly. She tells me she is exhausted and that she needs to go home. Her friend is coming to collect her from the hospital. I know that the reality of leaving Leon behind at the hospital is beyond her. Overwhelmed. Carol left and goes home, her dead, her son dead, his life now lost to her forever, his death now a permanent fixture in her life.
1: That just so beautifully captures what we've been talking about, those two layers side by side. And yes. um, what a blessing to have that to help you in facing the, the, the pain in the people that are left behind. To to feel that they're going to be there supporting as those people go forward.
2: And that's absolutely correct. And that's 24-7. Our loved ones in spirit don't go anywhere. The only thing that changes is our capacity and our awareness of them. They don't Mm. go anywhere.
1: Katrina, thank you so much. This was a delightful conversation.
2: Thank you very much for having me. I'm very grateful.
1: Next week, I'll be speaking with Marie Matsuki Mockett, whose own grief led her on a voyage to Japan to explore other ways to look at death. Her experiences resulted in her book, Where the Dead Pause and the Japanese Say Goodbye. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Mm-hmm.